would, please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 tonight. And go ahead and just keep those hands raised. Staff will come by and get you what you need. Paper, pen, Bible. Romans 15, 1 through 6, this is still kind of continuing... Paul's thought here as we looked at chapter 14 the last couple weeks of unity within the body, sharing with one another, loving one another, the strong and the weak Christian. Here we are now, Romans 15, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Allow me to pray for us uh, as we turn to God's word this evening. Lord God, we ask for your grace to be upon us. In this next hour. For apart from your grace. Lord we cannot understand. Apart from your grace. We cannot see you. Or know you. Apart from your grace. Lord the work of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts will not change. So Lord we ask for your grace tonight. We ask that you would bless our time in your word. And Lord that you would truly speak to us. Your words. Your truth. And change us tonight, God. Let this time be a time of worship to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, growing up a lot, I was uh, I was often, uh, I moved around a lot. I think I've shared this with you guys at some point, I'm sure, in the past. Um, that I was always kind of the new kid. Uh, up until high school, uh, the longest I've ever been out of school was two years. And that was once. That was uh, at... Water Creek Christian Academy. I was there kindergarten. Uh, I was there kindergarten, first grade, uh, and that was the longest I've ever been at a school. Other than that, I was always just uh, at a school for one year, uh, be it private, public, or homeschool. Uh, and I remember in fourth grade, uh, I, I was going. This is the only year I went to the school. It was a Christian school. Uh, and once again, I find myself being the new kid. Now, sometimes when moving around at different schools, sometimes there was no problem. I made friends uh, quite easily and quite quickly. Uh, that was not always the case. And this is one of those times that was not the case. Uh, I started fourth grade, and no one seemed to care to talk to me. No one seemed to care uh, to introduce themselves to me. Uh, no one sat next to me. At recess, they would all play football. No one let me play football. Like, literally, everyone's, like, picking everyone, you know, at the schoolyard. You line up on the fence, and I'll take you, I'll take you. And then I was, like, the last one to be picked. And then they're like, all right, looks like we're ready to go. Let's start. And I'm like, hey, what about me? Uh, I, I just was always kind of left out. 
Um, no one really seemed to care. Until one day, in my fourth grade class, there was this uh, big, tall, uh, chubby German boy named Simon. Uh, bless his heart. He, no one cared for him either. Uh, he was also a loner like me. And so he reached out to me, and he actually cared for me. We cared for each other. And so at recess, uh, we, we would actually we would just dig holes together. Uh, it was kind of sad. We, we were inspired by the movie The Great Escape, uh, and we thought if we dug a hole deep enough, we could escape school. Uh, we were not successful. Uh, and then sometimes we'd hang out at his house and have tea parties. Uh, it was really sad when you think about it, <laughs> me and this German boy having tea parties together. Uh, but he cared for me, uh, and both of us never really did feel the care of anyone else until we found each other. Um, maybe, maybe some of you guys have felt similar, uh, where you don't feel cared for, or maybe uh, you felt the opposite, where you really do care for from other people. Sadly, I think many times our natural, uh, even our sinful tendency uh, is to think of ourselves and not care for others. Think of ourselves first and not care for others instead. Maybe even just evaluate your own self and your own life. In what ways do you care for others? Uh, if I was in your fourth grade class, if Simon was in your fourth grade class, would you care for me? Would you care for Simon? In what ways do you care for others? Maybe in what ways might you not care for others? Well, here in this passage, Paul even backing up to chapter 14, Paul is continuing to stress the importance and the necessity of living in deep love and unity with those in the body of Christ. And he spent all of chapter 14 talking about that, and still here he continues that in chapter 15. And he had been addressing how the strong and the weaker Christian are to love one another and are to remain united in Christ, how they are to care for one another. And as Paul continues that thought here in these in chapter 15, he gets more specific on how we can live in deep love and unity in the body of Christ. And in these six verses, we'll see many things. We'll see that Paul gives us a charge of what we are to do. We will see an example of what it looks like. We will see the means of how we are able to do this, and we will see the purpose of why we should do this. Those will be our four main points tonight, each with two sub-points. So first, in, in regards in the context of living in deep love and unity in the body of Christ, we see the charge, verses 1 and 2. The charge. Can you read it? It's tiny. <laughs> I almost put it on two slides, but I want it all in one. But it, so we have a lot of points. That's why, okay? The charge. Can you see it in the back, in the way back? Okay, we're all right. All right, our first sub-point for the charge is to come alongside the weaker Christian and carry their burden. To come alongside the weaker Christian and carry their burden. He very directly addresses... The strong Christian now. Listen to verse 1. We who are strong. All right, he's addressing the strong Christian. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. 
The strong Christian is to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, when he says to bear with them, when he says to bear with the failings of the weak, he's not saying just tolerate them. It's not like maybe how you feel with your younger brother, where you're like, oh, I just have to tolerate him. I just have to bear him. Like, let's say your parents go out like, okay, you're in charge. You need to watch your little brother. And like, all right, fine. I'll just bear with him for a few hours. He's, he's annoying, but I'm just going to get through him. I'm going to tolerate him. That's not what he's saying here. That would be a very, uh, would not be interacting with the body of Christ in a very loving and unifying way. That's not what he means to bear with the weak. The word bear here really means to, to pick up and to carry a burden. That's what he means by bear. To pick up and carry a burden. Now the weaker Christian is not the burden that we pick up and carry. He's not saying bear with the weaker Christian as in, as in he's the burden. The weaker Christian is the burden. Remember, we're not simply tolerating them and their weaknesses. No, instead, when he's saying to bear with them, to carry their burden, he's saying that we are coming alongside the weaker Christian and we are carrying their burden with them. With the weaker Christian. Not letting them carry it on their own. Not, not living strong Christian in your ivory tower just looking down upon the weaker Christian. It's like, oh, that poor weak Christian. But we are to come alongside them. So what does it look like to come alongside them and carry the burden with them? Well, it means that we are sympathetic in our attitudes. Sympathetic in our thoughts towards them. It is to show genuine love to them. To understand, even if you don't share the same exact struggle, even if you cannot relate to their struggle, then being the weaker Christian, you are still sympathetic towards them. So remember that you too have struggles. And while they may be different, they're still struggles. And so in a way you can relate. And it means to genuinely love them through those struggles and through those weaknesses. To sympathize how difficult it may be for them. To genuinely care and love them, seeking to help them through the struggle. To pray with them. To be patient with them. It means that we are not judging them because of their weaknesses. To not be annoyed because they are struggling with these things that you want. To not think that their struggles are trivial and small compared to yours. Like, oh, you really struggle with that? Wow, you weak Christian. And it means, as Paul would say at the end of verse 1, it means to not please yourself. That's what he says in verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So it's a lot easier just to ignore the weaker brother and their weaknesses. Well, I don't have time for this. Oh, I can't believe that they're still struggling with something like that. Like, when are they going to mature? When are they going to grow? What is wrong with them? It's a lot easier just to please ourselves. It's a lot easier just to keep to ourselves and to focus on, on my walk and my struggles. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll let someone else, or I'll let God just deal with them, but I got enough worries of my own. But we are united together as one body. And we are to bear the burdens and the weaknesses of one another, especially the stronger brother. That's why he calls out, we who are strong. If you are the stronger brother here, if you're the stronger Christian here, you are in a position of strength to be able to pick up the weaker brother and to walk alongside them in their weaknesses. Are you doing that? Are you taking the time? Are you taking the energy 
Are you taking the discipline to be involved in the lives of one another? And what I mean is being involved in their spiritual lives, knowing their weaknesses, knowing their struggles, and seeking the Lord's help together in it. I challenge every believer here, I challenge us as a group, as TYG, to be people who do not have superficial, surface-level friendships, but to get deep with one another in a way in which we can bear each other's spiritual burdens and we can have a deep love and unity for one another where we see that it's, it's not just... Uh, the, the staff or the leaders or your parents, and these people should be involved in carrying your burdens with you. Yes, but even amongst each other, being part of the body together, brothers and sisters united in Christ, to come alongside each other and to address and to care each other's spiritual burdens. And Paul says this is an obligation for the strong Christian. We who are strong have an obligation, he says. Do you feel this obligation? Do you understand that especially if you are growing in Christ, part of your role in the body of Christ is to come alongside those who are not as mature in the faith yet and to help them in their weaknesses. You can serve the Lord by serving each other in the way in which you care for one another's spiritual walk. This requires humility. This requires taking the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. This requires compassion. It requires grace. It requires gentleness as you speak the truth into their life. It is not just the strong Christian saying, I'm the strong Christian, you're the weak Christian, so get in line and let me just tell you what, it's, what, what you should be doing. Let me tell you how you're doing everything wrong. But it's humility and grace. See, the point is unity and love. Even through the differences of our failings and our weaknesses, to come alongside them in their weakness, to bear it with them, and to humbly and lovingly Walk through it with them. Will you carry the burdens of one another? The next charge we see is to please others, not ourselves, by building them up. To please others, not ourselves, by building them up. Now he transitions slightly, I believe, from talking to the strong Christian to now talking to everyone. Why do I say that? Verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. He says let each of us, not just the strong Christian, but each of us, whether weak or whether strong, all inclusive, let each of us. And the charge here is to please our neighbor. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to please our neighbor? Well, first what it doesn't mean to please our neighbor is people pleasing. All right, Paul is not saying that we should, we should cater to everything everyone wants and our goal in life and our goal in ministry is to make everyone happy always. And just living this life of people pleasing. In fact, we're told many places in the scripture to not be people pleasers. Colossians 3.23, Ephesians 6.7, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, to name a few. We're not to be living for the approval and the praise of others, people pleasing. 
And sometimes that may be the temptation of those who are servants and who have a servant's heart and who are always serving. And people say, oh, wow, good job. Oh, hey, thanks for serving. And sometimes that temptation might be to do it to, to please others, to, to hear that praise. So we need to be careful of that. While we are to love and care for the needs of others, we are not worshipers of people. We are worshipers of God. So be careful of idolizing man and seeking their approval over God's. But what it does mean is to put their needs above our own. To please our neighbor means to put their needs above our own. That we are not seeking to please ourselves, but we're seeking to please others. That we count them more significant than ourselves. That their needs are greater than our needs, like we looked at last week in Philippians chapter 2. Is that your mindset? Is your mindset others first or me first? Is your mindset their needs first or my needs first? But Paul says to please our neighbor for his good, he says. For his good. And that's very important. It's not just pleasing him for whatever pleases him. Not, not just being a yes man and saying, yeah, okay, whatever you say. If that's what you want, great. Yeah, whatever pleases you. But instead, using discernment of pleasing, pleasing them of what is actually good for them. Well, what is their good? How do we know what is their good? Well, he tells us right there. He says, let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up. To build him up. It is the role of every Christian that we ought to build up one another. That is our good, to build him up. And what does it mean to build them up? How can we do that? By pumping them up and feeding their ego and saying, oh, man, Connor, you look so beautiful today. Man, yeah, let me just pump you up. You're the, you're the best Connor I've ever seen in my life. Wow, Connor, you're so great. No, I'm sure we can encourage one another. But that's not what he's saying. To build up your neighbor for their good is, is what? It is to attend to their greatest need, which is what? Their spiritual need. That's their good. And sometimes that means doing a difficult thing and not doing what they might think is best for them. Sometimes what our brother or sister in Christ thinks will please them is not for their good. It does not build them up. In fact, it actually might be for their bad. For example, if your brother or sister in Christ, maybe they're walking in sin. And they think that for their good is for you just to get off their back. And just let, them, just let them live how they want to live. But that's not what is for their good. Their good is for you to graciously and humbly exhort them and to call them out of their sin. That is seeking their good. That is building them up. Are you aware of what is actually spiritually beneficial for your brother and sister in Christ? Are you aware of that? Do you know what is actually spiritually beneficial for, for those in the body of Christ around you? And are you willing to do what you must in order to build them up? Are you seeking to please them over yourself? Will you make the effort, will you make the sacrifice to put away what, what may please you and to do what is necessary to please your neighbor by building them up in the Lord? That's what he's saying. So that's our charge. And then he gives us an example in verse 3. He gives us an example in verse 3. The first thing we see in this example is that Christ did not live to please himself. Christ is our example here. 
case you didn't know. Spoiler. Christ did not live to please himself. I mean, he says it very clearly in verse 3. It's not much of a spoiler, right? Okay, we already read it. But here's verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. Now, I'm not making this up, okay? Here's what it says. Christ did not please himself. Christ is always our greatest example, right? In all things, Christ is our greatest example. If we are seeking to live for the glory of God, if we are seeking to fulfill our purpose, which is to glorify God, then we must seek to imitate Christ. And here, in many other places, we see that Christ did not live to please himself. In fact, what does the Bible say? It says Christ came not to be served, but to serve, right? Mark 10, 45. Right there, we see the humility of Christ and the servant's mindset in which he lived by. That the one who deserves to be served by everyone all the time, the one who deserves all worship, the one who deserves our entire lives to be dedicated to him... He came here, not to be served, but to serve. You realize that? That's Christ. That's our example. Just think about that for a second. If, if Christ, if that was his example that he said, that's the way he lived, if that was his mindset, that he came here, not to be served, but to serve, are we so much greater than Christ to have a different mindset and to think that we should be served? And not serve others. You see what I'm saying? Like here's Christ's mindset. He's saying, I came not to be served, but to serve. But oh, but not me. I I I, I think I'm, I'm I'm better than Christ. I I should be served. I don't need to serve. Of course we'd say, no, that's wrong. We shouldn't have that mindset. But our lives might say something different. Because there are many times in which we are seeking to be served. Instead of seeking to serve others. I admit to that. Will you have the mindset of Christ? Or will you act as if you're greater than Christ? That no, I'm here and I should be served. Not served. Christ, and not living to please himself, he always sought the will of his Father over his own will. Jesus said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 18 and 30. He also said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38. He's talking about God the Father. His time here on earth was not a mindset of, I'm going to live my life to please myself. No, his mindset was, I'm going to live my life not seeking my own will, but seeking the will of my Father. What does my Father want from me? That's how I will live my life. Wow. Can you say that? What does my Father want from me? That's how I will live my life. Can you say that? If you're a Christian, can you say that about... God the Father, being your father, now adopted into his family. Can you say, what does my father want from me? That's how I will live my life. His will. Not my own. Even when the greatest suffering that any man on earth would ever endure, Christ still sought the Father's will. 
Right before he was arrested, he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. You, you know the prayer. Luke 22:42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Even in that moment, the darkest, most difficult moment in human history that any man would ever have to face. Even so, he sought the Father's will over his own. And he was joyfully submissive to it. There are times in which pleasing ourselves, in which when we please ourselves, it goes against the will of God. Yes? When we choose to sin because that sin would please us, it goes against the will of God. When we selfishly seek the praise and the glory of man and that pleases us, it goes against the will of God. Our self-glorifying pleasure goes against the will of God. Instead, we should seek pleasure in dying to ourselves. We should seek pleasure in serving others and we should seek pleasure in doing the will of God. You see, the Christian can and should seek pleasure in Christ. Living the Christian life is is not living a a pleasureless life that says, oh, now I'm a Christian. I can't have any pleasure. I can't have any joy in life. I can't enjoy life at all. No, the Christian life is full of pleasure. It is pleasure in living for Jesus Christ. The Christian life is full of joy. And it is full of pleasure. And it is when the Lord redirects our hearts and redirects our desires to live for his glory above all else. And when our joy and our desire is found in living for him. And when we do indeed sacrificially live for the Lord, then we do indeed find immense joy and pleasure in life. Maybe you're a Christian and you say, I have no joy in life. I do not enjoy life. I have no pleasure in life. Are your desires masked with the Lord's desires? Are your joys, are your pleasures in line with the Lord's desires and His pleasures and His joys? Do you find joy in living for the Lord? Nothing is more joyful and pleasurable than fulfilling our purpose and living for the One who is worthy of all worship and praise. You will find no greater joy No greater pleasure, no greater purpose than to live for your creator, your maker, your Lord, your savior, the one and true living God. You may try to seek your joy and your pleasure in anything else. You will not find it, but it's found in Jesus Christ. Next in our example, Christ demonstrated this by the suffering he endured. Christ demonstrated this by the suffering he endured. Paul actually quotes Psalm 69.9, the end of verse 3. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, now he quotes 69.9, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And what this is saying is that the reproaches, the insults that were directed at God, fell on Jesus. And there are many ways in which this is true, but I think the most supreme way is at the cross. That Jesus, God in the flesh, perfect, 
sinless, spotless lamb was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Christ suffered out of the love for his people and out of the obedience to the Father. Christ took our punishment so that we may live, so that we may have eternal life with him. And if you are not a Christian, you need to hear this. If you are not a Christian, you need to hear this. You need a Savior because you cannot save yourself. You need a Savior because you are not right with God. In fact, you are his enemy. And God will judge. And you are guilty. And you will be eternally separated from his perfect love and his grace as you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. But in Christ, we have salvation. Christ died so you can live. Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Will you truly repent of your sins? Will you, by his grace, accept this free gift of salvation? Not only did Christ suffer out of the love for his people, as we see demonstrated on the cross, but he also suffered out of perfect obedience to the Father. You see, Christ chose to perfectly obey the will of God and to live in perfect obedience to the Father, always. You see, Christ's sacrifice on the cross was not the Father forcing him to do so, but it was Jesus choosing to live in perfect obedience and submission to the will of God. Jesus willingly went to the cross in submission to the Father out of love for his people. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see, Jesus willingly laid down his life for his people. And he lived in perfect submission and obedience to the Father. And that was ultimately put to test at Calvary. Can you, like Christ, sacrifice for others out of submission to the Father and out of love for his people? I want you to think about that. I'm going to ask it one more time. I want you to think about that. Can you, like Christ, think of the way Christ did this. Can you, if you're a Christian, can you, like Christ, sacrifice for others out of submission to the Father and out of love for his people? Will you sacrifice your own comforts? Will you sacrifice your own time? Will you sacrifice your own conveniences? Will you sacrifice your own reputation out of submission to the Father and out of love for his people? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to submit to the Father and to love his people? Or rather this, this is the better question. What are you not willing to sacrifice in order to submit to the Father and to love his people? What are you not willing to sacrifice? Might that be an idol in your life? 
They're not willing to give this up. They're not willing to sacrifice this in order to submit to the Father. Not willing to give this up. Not willing to be uncomfortable in order to love this person. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of God and for the sake of his people? Indeed, that is what Christ, Christian, that is what Christ has done for you. Let him be our prime example. Next, the means. Verses 4 and 5. The means. First, we are instructed through Scripture. We are instructed through Scripture. What are the means? We, we, we've seen the charge. We've seen an example of what it looks like in Christ. And now we see the means. How do we do this? How do we do this? Well, first he says it is through Scripture. Listen to verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of Scriptures we might have hope. Now when he says whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, he's referring to the Old Testament. And while the New Testament is also written for our instruction, in this context, he's specifically talking about the Old Testament. We cannot dismiss the Old Testament. There is great value and purpose to the Old Testament. And for most of us, our tendency is going to be to read and to study the New Testament. I understand that. It's easier to digest and, and, and to find the application of the New Testament, right? A lot of you guys who are going through the Bible in a year, you're going through the hard part of the Old Testament, right? David told me he's just finally getting to some good stuff today. He told me that, right? But we must be students of the entire scriptures. For all of it, all of it is the inspired word of God. Even the Old Testament plays a crucial role in the growth of the Christian and the understanding of the climax of redemptive salvation history. It is even through the Old Testament we see God's entire plan of salvation. It is even in the Old Testament that we see Christ. Do you remember when the two disciples were talking on the road to Emmaus? Do you remember that story? And Jesus appears to them and he teaches them. And what does it say in Luke 24, 27? It says this. Jesus says, or sorry, Luke, Luke writes, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Himself. Christ. The Old Testament cannot just be dismissed and thrown away, but it is essential for our complete understanding of God's plan of redemptive history. All of Scripture, including the Old Testament, comes from the authority and the power of God. It is all His Word, and all of it carries with it the complete authority of God. And it is within that authority that all Scripture is there to instruct us, is there to teach us, is there to grow us, is there to direct our gaze upon God and worship Him. And within this instruction, the Scripture gives us hope. That's what it says in verse 4. It says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And this hope is an assurance of the future. And indeed, Christians can have a strong and an unshakable hope for what we see in scripture. They're not potentials, but they are assurances. For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20. But how is it that scripture gives us hope? How is it? 
It says right here, through the endurance and the encouragement of Scripture, it gives us hope. The endurance and the encouragement. Has Scripture produced endurance for you in your life? I hope so, Christian. Have you read through Scriptures and it has produced endurance for you? Have you read through the book of Job? Have you read the story of Joseph or Daniel or David? And and have these historic stories shown you the promises and the goodness of God? Does it create in you endurance? It ought to. And you see that endurance creates hope. In fact, you might remember many galaxy far, far away, a long time ago here, Romans 5, we went over this. He says, where are we? Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Go to scripture and let it create endurance that leads to hope. How has scripture created endurance for you that has led to hope? Think of how it has. Not only endurance, but encouragement. Has scripture ever been an encouragement to you? I hope so. I don't know what can be more encouraging than the word of God. There have been many seasons in my life. When I have experienced suffering and pain. And in those times I've been blessed to have friends gather around me and and to encourage me. And some have said some very nice things. And some have, have written very nice cards and have given me very encouraging words. But you know what words have been the most encouraging? When those friends bring me God's word. That's what's been most encouraging. For his words, God's words, are stronger than any words of man. Allow scripture to be an encouragement to you. And this encouragement produces hope. For it shows us the promises of God. And nothing is more encouraging than what God has promised for his people. So the means we see through scripture, but still through the means we see that we are empowered by God. We are empowered by God. None of this is possible without God and in his grace making it possible. You understand that? None of it is possible without God and without his grace. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. First of all, what it says, God is the God of encouragement and endurance. What he just said in verse 4, scripture gives us that. But guess what? God is the God of that. And then we also see that God gives us the power to live the way in which he calls us to live. Incredible. Without the grace of God, scripture would have no effect on us. You understand that? Without the grace of God, scripture has no effect on us. Why is it that someone can read the scriptures and it breathes new life in them and someone else can read the same passage and it appears as an outdated piece of literature? Is it because one person is more spiritual than the other? No! It's because of the grace of God! It's because God and His grace chose to illuminate that in your soul and chose to speak to you through His word. It's only by His grace. 
We must never forget or underestimate the grace of God. A lot of times I hear Christians say something like this. Conversation maybe goes like this. Man, I feel like I'm not really growing very much right now in my spiritual walk. The response, well, how's, how's your quiet time been? Have, have, have you been in his word? No, not really. Well, there's a problem. You need to be in his word. Maybe on the flip side. Man, I feel like I'm doing really good in my, in my Christian walk. I've been in his word so much. It's been great. Now, both of those scenarios seem fine. In one scenario, you're not growing much. And so you're counseled to be in his word more. Amen. In the other scenario, you are growing a lot. And it's credited to being in God's word. Amen. However, both are missing the core essential means. And that is the grace of God and the working of his Holy Spirit. You see, both scenarios very sneakily are are man-centered and are works-based. If I read, then I grow. If I don't read, then I don't grow. That is putting all the power within yourself and how good and how often you read the word of God or you don't. But the only reason why you can possibly grow from reading his word is because of the grace of God. And that's it. It is the grace of God that allows you to understand the scriptures and to grow in him. You're not growing because you're such a great Christian or because you're so disciplined in your quiet times. You grow because of the grace of God. Be careful of forgetting the grace of God. And instead being puffed up in pride thinking that you are the cause of your own growth. Now, is scripture powerful and true? Does God use it for for our growth and maturity in Christ? Yes! God's word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Yes! Oh, but it is so closely intertwined with the grace of God. Because without his grace, we would have no understanding. It's because of his grace that it pierces our souls. Do you see how much you need God? Do you see how much you need his grace? We need his grace in all things. We need his grace to believe. We need his grace to be saved. We need his grace to grow in our sanctification. We need his grace to obey his commands. We need his grace for all things. And the beautiful thing is that his grace does not run out. The beautiful thing is that he gives us his grace and he gives us the power to do the things that he asks us to do. Are we responsible for our actions and decisions? Yes. All while at the same time we are fully dependent on the grace that he freely bestows upon us. We are empowered by the grace of God. Now lastly, and most quickly, I know we're going a little long. Hang in there, guys. Is the purpose. Verse 5 and 6, the purpose. First, we see that the first purpose, that Christians are to live in harmony with one another. You see it under there, underneath the mics. Christians are to live in harmony with one another. And this has been the main theme throughout the last couple of chapters, right? So I'm not going to belabor the point. But we must keep in mind the main thrust of what Paul is getting at here. The vision can so quickly find its way within the church. 
And even in this context, remember the context of chapter 14, that it was in regard to the strong and the weak Christian being at odds with one another, right? Of what we should eat or drink or not eat or not drink. We are called not to be separated or divided, but instead to be united together as one body in Christ. Let us remember that God is the one who grants us to live in harmony with one another. Did you catch that? Verse 5 says he's the one who grants that to us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. This unity, this harmony, it's, it's not something that, that we need to seek to create. Oh, we need to create unity with each other. No, it's something that God's already created for us in his spirit. We are called to maintain it. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create it. It's been created. It's there, Christian. We maintain it. And how can we do that? Again, only by the grace of God. Let us rely on the grace of God together. And let us live in harmony with one another. Lastly, and most importantly, Christians are to live for the glory of God. That is our purpose really here. Christian, Christians are to live for the glory of God. As important as living in harmony with one another is, it is not the ultimate goal. All of this is for one main central purpose and goal, and that is to live for the glory of God. But look at how these two purposes work together, hand in hand. Verse 6, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see? With one voice we glorify God. The goal here is, is not to be at odds with other Christians and worship God on your own. The goal here is not to isolate yourself from other Christians and worship God on your own. Rather, the goal is together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must be united. We must be in harmony. And we must be together. The Christian walk is not a lone wolf walk. It's not not a lone ranger Christian. There are no lone ranger Christians. But together with one voice, we glorify God. The vision of the church, especially over, over little things like food and drink, they distract from our ultimate purpose as God's chosen people. When we begin dividing over tertiary things, we lose focus of the ultimate goal. Because in that moment, our ultimate goal is being right and making sure that everyone else agrees with us. That's not the goal. The goal is to glorify God together. So let us together, as one body, strive towards the same goal, which is to glorify the true and living God. Is that your desire, Christian? Is that your desire? Is that your goal? To glorify God together as one voice, one body. How are you seeking to accomplish that? Maybe say, of course that's my goal. Glorify God together as one body. How are you seeking to accomplish that goal? How are you practically seeking and exercising, being in harmony with the body, glorifying God with one voice? May that be the goal and the priority of all of us. To worship God and to glorify Him in one body in Christ.
as we close, I remind you that here in this passage, as we've seen even in chapter 14, that Paul stresses the importance and the necessity of living in deep love and unity with those in the body of Christ. And here in this passage specifically, we have a charge. We have an example. We have the means. And we have the purpose. Are you seeking deep love and unity with those in the body of Christ? Are you a promoter or a discourager of this love and unity within the body of Christ? Do you produce love and unity? Or do you produce division and disharmony with the body of Christ? What is your role in the body of Christ? As in, in, in what ways are you interacting with the body of Christ? Maybe you are passive. You are distant. Maybe you are a lone ranger. Let it not be so. Be part of the body. Love the body. Serve the body. Glorify God together with the body. Maybe you are a divider. Maybe you do cause division and disharmony with the body. Let it never be so. There is no room for division within the body of Christ. Seek unity with one another as we are all united in him. Instead of being passive, instead of being a divider, be an active participant in the love and the unity in the body of Christ. Let us together serve one another, love like Christ, be dependent on the grace of God, all with one voice for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray. For the unity of your people. God, that despite our differences or disagreements, that despite the sin that still remains within us, that despite our, our strength or our weaknesses, I pray that we'd be united together. God, that we would serve one another, that we would love like Christ, that we'd be dependent on your grace, learning from your scriptures, that we would do so living in harmony, all for the glory of you. Lord, I ask that you would convict us by your Holy Spirit, even as we leave here tonight. God, that the words that were said sink deep into our hearts and that you would change us for your glory. May Christ be exalted. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.